It is ironic that the same kinds of people who will often criticize the Western academic curriculum as Eurocentric or the narratives we tell ourselves as Eurocentric often engage in profoundly Eurocentric, America-centric storytelling in terms of the great injustices of history. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can veto for Italian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. I try to avoid listening to Donald Trump whenever I can. But when Trump decided to address the whole nation about the shutdown and there was fears that he might um, pronounce national emergency and claim extra powers, I thought that I have to tune in. My impression from his speech was mixed. It's remarkable to see him in this controlled setting because he actually loses a lot of his charisma. Some of that freewheeling nature of the big rallies he holds gives him an ability to connect with his audience, which I thought was lacking in this brief video address. He also was fear-mongering about immigrants in a way that was often very close to racism. And I still believe that most Americans do not embrace that. But at the same time, I was also struck by how powerful that core populist message is when it is carefully scripted, when Trump actually follows the things that his advisors have written out for him. I don't think these 12 minutes are going to make a huge difference in his fate or in his standing in the polls, but I did think that if the United States had a populist leader who fearmongers while making a moral case for things like the wall, who scapegoats minorities but without the most cartoonishly bigoted sentences and sentiments, somebody who could consistently pretend to care about the fate of America and Americans rather than Donald Trump and the Trump family. He would now be a good 10 points more popular than Donald Trump. And a populist who was a good 10 points more popular than Donald Trump would have a much bigger ability to actually subvert the political system and undermine the rule of law. So, on the whole, the speech left me disgusted with the nature of Trump's political appeal. It left me happy about the fact that the kind of populist we got was Donald Trump, an unstrategic, in many ways self-sabotaging political leader, rather than somebody as smart and as careful as, say, Viktor Orban. But it also made me quite worried about what would happen in this country if populism should ever be represented by a strategic, charismatic, careful figure. Welcome to the podcast, Coleman. Glad to be here. So I was looking through some of your writing over the past year in preparation for this, and I stumbled across an article that I'd been uh, thinking of writing for a long time, except that you did it better. It starts with a notion of a deputy and talks in particular about the phrase, all politics is identity politics. Why is that phrase a deputy and what does that mean? A deputy is a concept invented by the philosopher Daniel Dennett. 
And a deepity refers to a phrase that seems true and profound on its face, but is in fact vacuous and shallow. So the classic example is the phrase, love is just a word. That's a lovely phrase. What's wrong with that? Yeah, it's a lovely phrase. The problem is that, like all deepities, it has two possible interpretations, the first of which is true but trivial, and the second of which is false but would be mind-blowing if it were true. So to take it through love is just a word, that could mean that quotation marks around love is just a word in the same way that word is just a word or Ethiopia is just a word and every word is just a word. Hmm. That is a totally banal but true statement. And on a second interpretation, it could mean that there is no such emotion as love and everyone Mm. who thinks they felt it was either self-deceived the word love does not refer to anything in our world. And that's and, and, clearly and, and false. And what you're saying is that the phrase love is but a word sort of seems interesting or it seems deep because it equivocates between the two meanings. That's right. That it sort of gets its plausibility from the first sense, which is trivial, but it gets its sort of seeming depth from the second sense, which when you look at it carefully actually turns out to be wrong. Yeah, it seems profound because we're failing to disambiguate when we hear that. Like you say, we're getting the plausibility from the first reading and the profundity from the second. But really, when you disambiguate, you realize it's neither of those. It's actually Mm. just an empty phrase that really is meaningless. So that's an interesting point, and I'm sure that listeners to the good fight uh, dislike inspirational cliches, and that'll give them a nice way of sort of reacting to the stuff that their friends and relatives post on Facebook with, you know, pictures of sunrises in in the background. Uh, What does that have to do with identity politics? Well, there's this argument I've heard made by Ezra Klein of Vox and Matthew Iglesias of Vox with regard to identity politics, namely that when people criticize identity politics, they're really confused because in some sense, all politics are identity politics. And it's just a matter of which identities are being targeted or stoked in any given moment. And an example I've heard used by Matthew Iglesias is that when Barack Obama made a Star Trek reference in, in some speech, he was appealing to scientists and the community of people who identify as science people in their capacity as scientists, appealing to that aspect of their identity. I would think it's more sci-fi nerds than scientists, but we'll let that one slip. Yeah, he was assuming there that all scientists are sci-fi nerds, which is a bit of a stereotype. I find that to be uh, deeply very offensive. offensive. (laughs) So the idea is that that is just as much identity politics as a black person or a woman or a white man playing the race card or the gender card in a conversation or being appealed to as a voter in their capacity as. The key distinction that is being slipped here is the difference between an immutable identity and a mutable identity. You're not born a scientist. You can cease to be a scientist tomorrow. You're born biologically a male or a woman. You are born whatever skin color you are, and that can't be changed. Let me back up here for a second. So what you're saying is that when people are critical of identity politics, when you're critical of identity politics, as I believe you are, what we're really saying is it's bad to base as much of our politics as we are in this country and perhaps around the world on immutable characteristics, on saying we are a group of white people, black people, whatever it is, and that means we have certain group interests and so on. Whereas there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, we are 
retired and we want to make sure that retired people in this country get to have a decent life. We are service industry workers and we think that we should enjoy the same minimum wage as other kinds of workers. Yeah, that's right. There's no equivalence between a politician appealing to a group of, say, college students promising to forgive student loan debt and a politician appealing to black people to offer reparations for slavery or white people for an ethnostate of some kind. And the defense of identity politics that posits that, in fact, all politics are identity politics, it just skirts the difference between those two things. And it is, in fact, a deepity in that sense. I mean, the, the reason I call this a deepity is because on one reading, it's clearly true, but trivial. We have identities like scientists or students or retired people, and we are political people. So in that sense, all politics is identity politics because it's appealing to people with identities. That's true, but banal in the way that love is just a word on one reading is true, but banal. And on a second reading, it's saying that there's no moral difference between making a political claim based on your race or gender and making a political claim based on your status as a scientist. Hmm. And that's silly. That's false, but would be mind-blowing if true. So it's really a non-defense. So I find what you say very convincing insofar as it goes, but I think there's an objection that Ezra and Matt would make if they were in the room. So let me try and channel that. So look, I agree with you that there's something quite pernicious about forms of politics that take immutable characteristics to have inherent value and to be the lines around which we should organize our politics. And so I certainly think that sort of erasing the distinction between I'm organizing because I believe in science and I'm outraged that we're not doing the right things about climate change or whatever it is, as opposed to, you know, I'm organizing because I'm white and, you know, I want to protect the interests of my group. Like, those are two very different things. And I buy that the phrase, all politics are anti-politics, doesn't appreciate that those are morally different things in exactly the way you outline. Now, I think one of the things that they would say for is that, well, look, actually a lot of the politics that's happening in the United States is in fact a form of white identity politics, right? It's a form of whites organizing around the group interests of whites. And they would argue that something like Donald Trump is a good expression of that. But that, that isn't seen by us because the sort of politics of the white evangelical coalition in the United States, for example, just seems like, well, that's sort of what a certain part of the conservative spectrum is like. We don't recognize it as being the expression of group interest based on immutable characteristics in the same way we do when uh, African-Americans or LGBTQ people or whoever else sort of organizes for their interests. What would you respond to that? I would actually just bite the bullet on that completely and say I agree. I totally agree that Donald Trump and certainly the far right and elements of the right at this point are engaged in white identity politics. I have really no disagreement with that. I might disagree in any specific case, whether mm -hmm. one policy or one statement is an example right. of appealing to white people, qua white people. But no, I think that analysis is spot on. So I guess my question is, what do we make of that? And I think that's actually one of the deeper political puzzles of this time. Because when you live in a country which I think does have some deep injustices and you have a very powerful political force that does often engage in white identity politics... How do you stand up to that and how do you stand up for the rights and interests of the groups that they sometimes target and whose interests they're at least happy to ignore and perhaps they even get some political capital out of attacking them? How do you respond to that without deepening the extent 
to which this country is organized around the lines of identity politics. So one response is, well, look, if that's what they're actually doing, then the only response is that that's what we should be doing too, right? Because otherwise one group's interests are represented in the political system and the others aren't. So we just need to fight fire with fire. So what's wrong with that strategic response to American reality as it is? Well, I think the more that the left anchors itself to black and brown identity politics, the more the right is going to anchor itself to white identity politics. You just have to put yourself in the shoes of a white man with a certain kind of a personality that is having to hear from people getting hired by the New York Times statements about white people that just would not fly about any other race. Someone who perhaps wants less immigration for a reason and any articulation of the idea that immigration should be reduced is synonymous with racism. Having to hear people called racist on in MSNBC world for things that clearly aren't. Well, like, what's an example of it? A recent egregious example, I think, is Trump calling Omarosa Manigault Newman a dog. Clearly a bullying move, without a doubt. But it was just obvious in MSNBC world that that was racist. And then you go to New York Times and you, you, you look at their database of everyone Trump has called the dog. And there's so many white people on that list. Mac Miller and David Axelrod and uh, others. Anyway, that is exactly the kind of thing that radicalizes white people and mm. moves them towards the right. And the fact of the matter is that America is frankly one of the least racist countries on earth. Pew just, you may have seen this release. Mm, yeah, I did. I think it's kind of like a kind of attitude survey on immigration. And by any objective measure, the U.S. is one of the most pro-immigration countries in the world. Yeah, so what it showed in that poll, I forget the exact phrasing now, but I think it was basically about whether you oppose having uh, increasing the extent of immigration to your country or something like that. And huge majorities of virtually every European country said, yeah, yeah, we, we don't want that. And in America, it was only, I think, 32% who said right. that. So did they do... Japan or you know, East Asian countries. It's not just that we're pro-immigration compared mm -hmm. to Europe. We're pro-immigration compared to East Asia. Yeah, so the European piece is salient for me, I mean, in part because I'm from Europe, because that's my piece of identity politics, but also because I had argued something along those lines on Twitter about a week earlier, mm. and I got a real pile on. And I'd love to get your sense of the psychology of that. I mean, people were outraged that I said, you know, it's striking that the debate about politics in Europe is far to the right of the debate in the United States. And I didn't mean to minimize by that in any way the deep anti-immigrant sentiment that you see, especially from this administration, the separating children from parents at the borders and so on, all of those, all of which I'm obviously outraged by. But I think that there was this sort of interesting desire for a lot of my American followers to sort of self-flagellate. I mean, there was a sort of, no, 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 we got to be worse than other people. And if you somehow call in doubt that we're worse than other people, then you're attacking a basic piece of how I see the world. I was struck by the response to that because I wouldn't think me and those followers had any actual disagreements on pieces of substantive policy. But it was nearly as though sort of calling in doubt the extent to which the United States is specifically unjust in comparison to some other countries, which are pretty terrible on issues like immigration. Yeah, I don't know. How do you make sense of that? Why do you think that is? Yeah, it is ironic that the same kinds of people who will often criticize the Western academic curriculum as Eurocentric or the narratives we tell ourselves as Eurocentric often engage in profoundly Eurocentric, America-centric storytelling in terms of the great injustices of history. 
If you only paid attention to mainstream center-left media in America, you would have no idea that America was literally one of the most pro-immigration countries on earth. You would have no idea that slavery, for example, was an institution practiced in almost every major civilization for the past 10,000 years. The way in which we focus to the exclusion of the rest of the world and to the rest of history on our own sins, it's coming from what I consider a laudable sentiment, this kind of self-critical urge that in many ways is part of what makes America great. Hmm. It's the capacity to criticize ourselves and to hold power accountable. To focus on that, to present America as an exceptional case of evil is, I think, a huge mistake. It's forgetting that we're dealing with this fact of human nature, the fact that we're created by evolution with various capacities, some of which are quite ugly. Hmm. And we can't be playing this self-flagellation game. There's just kind of arms race going on with especially white people at this moment. It's almost as if we're fighting to find the weapon that most pumps guilt into the hearts of white people at the fastest rate compatible with the laws of physics. That's how I sometimes think of this. And that's a dangerous game because a lot of white people are going to look at that game and say, actually, I want nothing to do with this. And mm -hmm. the only alternative right now is the right, is a right that is increasingly going towards populism and its own kind of grievance narrative that is somewhat crazy. So let's distinguish between two worries here. So one is an electoral worry. So on this account, when you talk about white guilt in those ways, it's unwise because it's just going to help Donald Trump gain re-election in 2020 and it's going to harm the very groups that the narrative is supposed to help. Perhaps we can discuss that later down the line. But what about sort of substantively, if we didn't have those potential electoral worries? Why is this a problem? Isn't it good if we have a certain bias towards being overly attentive to our own flaws? If we amplify the extent of injustice in our society because we're so passionate to remedy it. Isn't that preferable to having the opposite bias of saying, oh no, we don't want to look at our flaws and so on. So well, might that not, I'm no evolutionary biologist either, but in sort of evolutionary terms, be a good adaptive trait hmm. in the same way in which we actually have an evolutionary bias towards underestimating how long things take. Because apparently right, human right. beings who thought, oh, building this house is only going to take me two weeks, thrive because to they tried to build the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So perhaps it was an adaptive trait. Perhaps actually it makes sense to be overly focused on injustice or exaggerate the extent of injustice because it actually helps us remedy it. I could understand that being true in the case of any particular individual person. But when you're talking about a society with hundreds of millions of people, many of whom are not inclined in that way, which is to say, many white people have no white guilt at all. Hmm. And the rhetoric of the far left, it kind of presupposes that any white person listening to it has a sufficient amount of guilt to take it seriously. But the fact is, half or more, I would argue, of white people don't have a shred of white guilt. And frankly, why should they? You're born the year that you're born. We don't hold you responsible for the crimes of your father and your mother. We don't put you in jail if, if your parent does something terrible. Why is it that we're holding people responsible for things that happened sometimes hundreds of years ago, depending on the specific grievance we're talking about? You asked the question, so why is this problematic outside of the pragmatic question? I think it's a profoundly flawed view of what it means to be human. It's an endorsement of the collective idea that humans are best understood as members of groups that go back 
hundreds of years rather than as individuals born the year that they were born. It's a recipe for constant conflict because history is a repository of grievances that is infinite. There's no end to the grievances that can be mined from history and made fresh in the present and used to stoke tensions between groups. There's also no predetermined degree to which people conceive of themselves as members of collectives. Right? We, we could raise the next generation of Americans to be two or three times as tribal as we were if we said the right things, essentially. And I would argue we could raise the next generation of Americans to be half as tribal as we are if the adults got our stuff together. So there is an ethical problem here that's independent of the political problem, which is how are we raising people to think of themselves as individuals or as members of a collective? And I think the individual view has to win. Hmm. So. That, to me, gets to a crucial point, which I think I want to spend the bulk of the rest of the conversation thinking about, because I find your criticisms quite persuasive, but I'm a little frustrated with the state of a conversation in general, because I feel like there is a set of people who don't want to acknowledge the extent of inequality and injustice that we still have in this country and who basically say as long as we have formal equality, that's all we have to worry about. We've abolished slavery, we've abolished Jim Crow, so let's stop talking about this topic altogether. I don't think that's quite enough. Then I think there's a set of people who say our country is so unjust and these problems are caused by a form of white identity politics to such an extent that the only real viable response is to double down on identity politics in itself and say we should organize American life around groups. And the positive vision is that we'll have an inevitable demographic majority for the forces of good. And by 2045, uh, that coalition will win every election. And I'm both skeptical whether that'll in fact happen for all kinds of reasons and skeptical that would be a good society. Because even if all of that turns out as planned, it'll still leave 45% of the electorate deeply resentful to what's going on and the society riven along those lines of immutable characteristics, which doesn't sound very appealing to me. And then there's people who spend all of their time criticizing those forms of identity politics. And I think in terms of the critique of what this will lead to, I think they tend to be right. I think they also tend to be right when we point out that there are silly things that college students at Oberlin and this and that place do. But they're not actually putting forward a vision of their own very often. And as we learned in the philosophy of science, for example, from Thomas Kuhn, you know, scientists will keep on believing a particular paradigm even when they see that there's lots of things in reality that paradigm misses. Yeah, science That's makes progress right. one funeral at a time. But part of it is that you have to, it's not just that they have to die off, um, uh, so scientists who believe in the old paradigm, is that you have to have an alternative paradigm. Mm. Because until you have an alternative paradigm, you might sort of acknowledge there are certain problems that your own paradigm has, but you have nothing to jump to and you cannot believe anything, right? So what's the new paradigm? I mean, what to you is the vision of the American future that can compete with the identity politics vision, that actually sets out an idea of what this country could look like in 2015, 2100. That's much better. And, and I think part of the answer you gave him in the last thing you said, which is you want to make people less tribal. But what would a less tribal society look like? How do we achieve that? That's a great question. I mean... I think we have to start by 
clearing the floor of the bad ideas and especially by by not letting the bad ideas and I'll give you an example of one in a moment not letting the bad ideas prevail in terms of the next generation of kids coming out of schools all over the country uh, i think intersectionality is one of these bad ideas and it's not all bad i mean there are parts of it that are clearly true namely that there are certain experiences that say a black woman is more likely to have than either a black person or a woman and that the sum of those identities don't add in a linear way there's a kind of extra emergent phenomenon or you can talk about it that way and sort of make mm. sense of it that way it seems to me from a perspective of a social scientist that intersectionality may be a semi-DPT so mm. you know in one sense it essentially in my mind boils down to what in stats we would call an interaction effect mm. right? right I right. mean that's right you know being uh, I don't know what's an interaction effect being in the top 1% of your society and being in the United States predicts much greater wealth than just being in the United States or just being in the top 1%. And it's not just additive, right? So you can't just say, you know, the people globally in the top 1% have an average of a million dollars and people in the United States, you know, on average have a net worth of 50,000. And so once you put the interaction effect together, you know that somebody is a 1% in the United States, they have 1 million and 50,000. Right. Actually, it means that they probably have 5 million or whatever it is. Right. So in one sense, I think intersectionality basically is an interaction effect, right? Mm. There's something about being a black woman that adds up to a disadvantage that is not just given by the arithmetic sum of the disadvantages suffered by black men on the one hand and white women yeah. on the other hand. I mean, and, I, and that I would, seems to me to be I wouldn't want to, yeah, I wouldn't, I would agree with that. I wouldn't want to reduce it to a disadvantage though. It's just certain experiences, some of which are disadvantages and some of which may be neutral or advantageous. So I wouldn't want to... Right. Yeah, so that I'm okay with, but... Then there's this extra idea in intersectionality, which is that to be black is to have special knowledge, unavailable, inaccessible mm -hmm. to white people that you can leverage in conversation. It's a shattering of the epistemological landscape. How you know what you know is dependent on the identity you were born into by accident. Mm -hmm. I think that that is a terrible idea, but it's also a very powerful idea. It's one that I got hammered into me when I was 16, 17, and very much believed. It's very, very attractive. Very attractive. And kids are highly suggestible. So I think if we're not careful, we could be raising a generation increasingly taken in by this idea, increasingly viewing themselves as, as belonging to collectives, and so the first step to... Can I, can I just, just, just to pause on that for a moment? What do you mean by saying that, so if you have different experiences, which you've acknowledged, then surely that experience leads to different forms of knowledge. Now, see whether you agree here. The way that I see this is that, yes, your ascriptive identity does lead to differential forms of experience. Those forms of experience do lead to certain forms of knowledge about society, it's very easy for me to miss certain forms of experiences and yes, disadvantages that various people experience because I don't experience them, so it's just hard for me to see. Now, where I think the difference between some of the thought world of sort of the intersectionality crowd and my view lies is that those are forms of knowledge which are easily communicable. So I think people who've had those experiences, who've gained that form of knowledge, 
can put them in propositional form and straightforward English sentences that as long as I take the time to listen them out and reason about it in good faith, um, I can appreciate and evaluate. And a lot of the time I learn by doing that and a lot of the time I'll agree with them, but some of the time I'll disagree with them, right? Some people will say, hey, I think therefore that this country is like this. And I'll look at that and say, no, I see that that's your experience and I think that's an important aspect of what's going on. But you know what? I think the conclusion that you draw on the whole is wrong for these and these reasons. Mm. So I think to me, the battleground is not does people ascriptive identity give them a set of experiences that other people don't have? It's about, does that preclude us being able to sit down together as reasoning human beings and objectively evaluate the claims that come out of that? Yeah, that's a great way to phrase it. And I think you know, my understanding of intersectionality is that the conversation actually stops when I've had an experience that you haven't had you know, I've had conversations with people, you know, where I'm sort of outranked because I'm talking to a woman about feminism, say, and, you know, multiple times now this has happened where it just gets to an impasse where I had someone literally say this to me the other day, you're a man, I'm a woman, you're taking up space in this conversation that you shouldn't be. So like, that's a conversation ender. Right. And right. I sort of tried to move the conversation somewhere else to, to say, well, listen, like, I'm black, you're white. Would you accept the argument if I just said, I'm black and you're white and you're taking up space? And she actually said, yes, I would accept that. So so we had we had very different... <laughs> right, and so, so different, that literally means you can't talk to each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. Because we, you outrank each other in different dimensions. In different ways, yeah. That's kind of beautiful. So on different topics, it would just be one lecturing the other. Mm. It's not a conversation. It's just a series of monologues at that mm. point. So yeah, I'm, I'm worried about that. And the biggest reason that that just doesn't make sense epistemologically is that two black people can disagree right and yet both be black right like like there's this whole phenomenon of i mean the new york times did a poll maybe now two months ago found more black people identify as conservative than identify as liberal only slightly but that's a fact that you almost certainly wouldn't know if you hadn't heard it hmm. like you would almost certainly assume that was not the case. The listeners to this podcast know this because I've mentioned it before in this podcast. Oh, well, there you but, go. Uh, but no, I mean, it's, it's something that I've asked a lot of people this question. What percentage of black people in the market do you think identify as liberal? And the guesses I've gotten from super politically knowledgeable people is, you know, 60, 70%. Yeah. And it's actually, I think, 28 according yeah, to the yeah. poll. So yeah. let me try another one on you slash your All audience. Right. What percentage of black people without a college degree do you think would agree with this statement, racism has had no effect on my chances of success in life? Black people without a college degree. Without a college degree would agree with this statement, racism has not affected my chances of success. Let's take a free second uh, pause for everybody to ponder the answer to this. You can the answer tweet is... responses to Go ahead. <laughs> 60%. Wow. Pew. Yeah. Pew from uh, one or two years ago. Huh. It's interesting, right? Because well, that's... What's, what's, what's great about this is that it sets up a kind of philosophical paradox for believers in a certain form of epistemology that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Because if that's the experience of 60% of black people without a college degree and they have more standing in that conversation than I as a white man have, according mm -hmm. to that epistemology, I have a strong belief that racism did impact their life chances. Mm -hmm. But here's somebody who has greater standing in that conversation telling me that they don't, so we're at an well, impasse. Yeah. Well, I mean, the same, the same New York Times poll I cited about a minute ago found that white progressives, I think, were something like 79% of, of white progressives 
agreed with a statement about you know black people lagging behind having to do with you know systemic inequality or whatever and only 60% of black people on the whole agreed with that hmm. so you know white progressives were far to the left of black people on the topic of systemic racism. So, 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 so to, to, to keep trading these sort of entertaining facts, the one that I was most struck by, which relates to the report by Morn Common that we discussed in the episode with Tim Dixon a couple of months back, is that on the sort of feeling thermometer, which is a standard social science question, you know, how do you generally feel about people of the following groups? Mm. When you ask uh, white progressive activists, so whites with um, uh, strongly left-leaning views, how they feel about white people, they have more negative feelings than the average African-American does, which is kind of amazing. But I think we're getting too far into a comfort zone here, mm. which is that, again, I think a lot of the things that you're pointing out are interesting and they're right, they're not deputies. But I think it's easier to point out those mistakes than to start constructing a vision of mm. what America should look like. And that's a piece of a conversation where we're uncomfortable with because it's hard. Mm. But, you know, I think you have so much insight into these topics. I, I would love to get your sense of that. I mean, when you picture America in 2050 and it's your best case scenario for how things go, what broadly would that look like? Part of, I think, why I struggle to answer that question is that I don't view politics as a key part of what I think it means to lead a meaningful life or to have a flourishing society. Obviously, politics is the reason why many societies don't flourish. One reason, certainly. But what does a flourishing society look like in 2050 or 2100? I don't see part of that flourishing entailing particular political beliefs mm. to begin with. Mm. I don't think people should be getting their meaning in life from politics to begin with, for the most part. I think it's a poor place to look for that kind of thing. It's probably better to be passionate about something, to love the people around you. And I would want to live in a country that allows for that, allows for people to pursue their own happiness in myriad ways. I think that's very wise and I agree with that. But I think it's a little bit of a cop-out because you don't have to think, I mean, your vision for 2050 or 2100 doesn't need to be a political vision. I'm not saying, you know, we would have passed universal healthcare and we would have done all of these other things. I'm saying, what would society look like? What would our social discourse look like? How would Americans relate to each other? Now, one theory of changes that has to come about through these and these sets of political changes, but perhaps your theory of changes, no, actually, it's about how I hope culture will develop and how people's personal decisions will develop. So I don't think sort of saying it's not about politics quite gets mm. you out of the task I'm setting you. To be clear, the task you're setting me is what would I like our public discourse to look like in well, the future that it's not showing now? Or Yeah, I mean, if you identify certain forms of identity politics, certain forms of intersectional epistemology and so on as a danger, right? I mean, you think these things matter because they have a potential, as you're saying earlier, of making our children, you know, twice and three times as tribal as we are rather than less tribal. So you have a sort of worst case scenario in mind, yeah. right? What's the best case scenario? I mean, what would you want that society to look like? So I mean, another question is sort of, let me put a little bit more sort of meat on the bones of that question. What role should identity play in 2050? I mean, there's one idea where it just doesn't play any role. We're all just these highly individual reflecting beings and some of us love jazz and others love playing tennis and others love whatever and ascriptive identity doesn't play any kind of role in our lives. Another vision perhaps is that no, I mean, ascriptive identities can play a role and people are still are always going to be groupish, but there's 
a lot of interaction between those groups and they don't sort of define people very deeply. And then another one is, no, actually, your scriptive identities are always going to matter a lot, but each of these groups will have equal standing and equal economic success and equal rights, and we'll spend all of our time sort of celebrating each other's groups, but from a distance. I think that's sort of one uh, version, fair or not, of what parts of the left currently want, right? So like, what along that spectrum, what do you think would a good society look like? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think it's realistic to presume, like some people do, that you can get rid of group identity full stop. I think it's probably too hardwired for people to think about groups to completely get rid of it, but there is a spectrum with Rwanda at the height of the genocide on one end and something at the other end. And it's clear to me that you can make incremental progress away from Rwanda and towards the ideal where I would argue people are primarily viewing themselves as individuals. They don't think people are best understood as members of abstract collectives. And they don't really understand themselves to stand in relation to historical grievances in such a way that they have to repay them or collect the debt. But perhaps people nominally identify as members of their group and take it as seriously as they take being a not a hardcore sports fan, but sort of a nominal sports fan. I think there's room for a healthy group identification where your group can take a joke, you can dish it out. You can go to a comedy club and hear your group made fun of, and it doesn't really hurt because it's not an essential characteristic of who you are. I think that is possible in principle. I think it's achievable. I don't like this other idea that groups should be sort of admiring each other from afar, sticking with their own. I think that's very constraining. I think that's uh, that's very silly. I also want to get away from this idea of there being a kind of rubric for what it means to be an X. We kind of all know this, and this is probably something that most of us know best from our own experiences. For example, like I know that there is more or less a rubric for what it means to be black that changes from place to place and from time to time. But if you're a, you know, a black 16-year-old kid in high school with a certain set of interests, let's say you do very well in school, you kind of like having a buttoned-up demeanor, you're going to be seen as failing the rubric for blackness by some number of your peers. There's just a story of a girl in Alabama who hanged herself. She was maybe nine years old, and her mother identified the main thrust of the bullying she received as the fact that she was hanging out with white kids and wanted to be a scientist and was teased for, quote, acting white. Like there, there are versions of this rubric in oh, every group. That's interesting. I mean, I had only seen one news report about that story, which was harrowing. But that to me suggested, or at least it was framed as that, that it was essentially whites in her class bullying her for mm-hmm. hanging out with a white boy. And it was it, it made it sound like essentially a sort of, uh, the school was internally segregated. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. it was a mixed school, but mm-hmm. basically it was these separate social spheres and there was white backlash against her hanging out with white kids. You're saying it was mm-hmm. more the other way around. I read the story in the Washington Post yesterday. There's also one, I think, from NBC. And I think regardless of where it was coming from, we could get the details straight. She was failing the rubric for what it means to be an ex. Mm -hmm. And there are versions of that for really every ethnic group. Mm -hmm. And the problem with having a rubric for your racial or ethnic identity is that 
given human variance, people are going to fail that and they're going to pay a social cost for failing it. And that's a condition I think we should be trying to escape. My goal for a society would be one in which it's less and less the case that people are struggling with those kind of constraints. And last question, how do we get there? I mean, do you think that is about some forms of political action? Do you think it is about all of us changing our understandings of what kind of society we should want? Do you think that's something that might happen naturally as people butt up against each other in society and go to the same schools and meet each other at the workplace and so on? Is there anything we can do to hurry that vision, which sounds very appealing to me along? Or do we just sort of have to sit back and pursue our own interests and, and hope we wake up in 2050 and the world is a better place? Um, yeah, I think that last option clearly seems naive. But um, no, I don't. I don't really know. Frankly, I mean, I'm trying to do my part by talking about this and hmm. I'm only one person and we're all only one person, I suppose. So we're all individuals. I'm not as the wonderful Monty Python uh, uh, <laughs> sequence has it. Oh, yes. That's a funny one. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what there is to do other than to talk about it as often as possible and as pointedly as possible. Well, I mean, I think my answer to this and it's uh, a very initial and incorrect answer as well is that we need to challenge ourselves to come up with that vision and and to put more and more uh, detail on that vision. And then once we have that, um, I think uh, it'll have implications about how to get there. And that's not going to be straightforward. I mean, some of the biggest uh, uh, political debates and even uh, fights are about tactics as much as they are about the end goal. They're about different views on how to get to a vision. But I think the first thing to do is to actually articulate what that vision is. And to me, you know, I love the United States and I choose to make my life here because having grown up in Europe and, I, you know, I didn't grow up in, I grew up in nice urban parts of Germany, which has its own deep history of reckoning uh, with its cruel past. You know, I think there's many wonderful things about Germany. There's many wonderful things about France and the and, you know, kingdom in which I've lived. Uh, but to me still, the spaces in which I've been in which something like a vision you put forward where people acknowledge the group they're from and we celebrate it a little bit, but it doesn't deeply define people. The spaces where I've come closest to experiencing that have been in the United States. Mm. And I don't mean to imply that that's the modal thing that happens in the United States. I don't mean to understate how many problems we still have in this country. It's enough to look at the current administration to be deeply aware of that. But that's, for me personally, why I've chosen to make my life here. And so I think continuing to articulate what that vision is and think about how we can, rather than saying, oh, that's naive, you know, that's just you and your, you know, educated affluent friends in like New York City or something like that and sort of sneer that away, I think the task should be, so how do we, A, improve those spaces themselves and B, make them conquer more of a country? I mean, that is what we should be thinking about. And I don't know the answer either. But the more I think about it, the more it seems to me that's my political and cultural mission for the next decades. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe part of the answer entails people who work in media and journalism thinking very hard about stories we choose to tell, the way we choose to tell history. I think it would loop back to the beginning of our conversation. Getting out of this America-centric way of reading history's evils or this Eurocentric way of reading history's evils would help, I think. It would help people place the horrors of 
American injustices, slavery and Jim Crow, etc., in a world historical context that, while not being in any way exculpatory of America, just puts it in the context of human misery and cruelty, really a species-wide phenomenon. Hmm. And maybe that would help kind of move this conversation forward. Obviously, the, the incentives of journalism are to get the most clicks at this point. That's not the only incentive, but it's one of the big incentives, and that leads people to you know, interpret one-off events as trends. You know, the, the, the unarmed black person that gets killed by the cops gets lots of coverage, even if more unarmed white people in any given year get killed by the cops because that story stokes the proper amount of outrage. People are liable to interpret that as a trend that the country is going in, even even if it's not. So if journalism can get more trend-based, not announce that there's a crisis, some kind of identity-based crisis every time a one-off event happens, you know, I don't know how those changes are going to happen practically, but I think all of those things would be steps in the right direction. Coleman, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you two have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, get a big tattoo of The Good Fight. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.